When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Mark Hennig about the new book, So-Called Normal, a memoir of family, depression, and resilience. A vital and triumphant story of perseverance and recovery by one of Canada's foremost advocates for mental health. So-called Normal is Hennig's memoir about growing up in a broken home and the events that led to that fateful night on the bridge. It is a vivid and personal account of the mental health challenges he experienced in childhood and his subsequent journey towards healing and recovery. Well, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So how are you? How has your week been? You know, it's been a busy week. I'm located in Canada, and it's Mental Health Week here. Uh, it's Mental Health Month in, in the United States. Um, Mental Health Awareness Week is coming up uh, later this month in, in the UK. Uh, so it, May is a busy time for mental health, but I'm doing exactly what I love to do. And can you tell us a bit more about what you do? Sure. Well, I talk about mental health. I do, um, you know, I, I jokingly tell people sometimes that I have no other transferable skills, that I just talk about emotion and how we manage it. I talk about my own experiences with a severe and persistent mental illness as a young person. Uh, and ideally, I hope anyway, uh, I give people some tips and tricks for how to uh, manage their own mental health and live more intentionally. And how are you finding this field? Do you have um, many friends, advocates as well, for example? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been doing this now for 20 years, really, and um, ever since I was uh, a high school student. And I've seen the mental health space evolve a lot over that time. You know, historically, 20 years isn't that long. But um, in a space like mental health, I've seen incredible movement in how we talk about not only mental health problems and illnesses, but how we talk about positive mental health and and self-care, self-love. So that's been heartening to see. Um, You know, I think in some ways, while there's been a lot more celebrity attention and things like that on mental health, I think we're still just scratching the surface, that that it's still a very um, superficial way uh, of thinking about mental health. So that's where I've been turning my focus, I find, in recent years has been toward uh, not necessarily expanding uh, you know, growing more expansiveness in public awareness of mental health, although I still do that through media as well, but rather growing the depth uh, of awareness and really the the uh, level uh, of sophistication in the conversation. I, I think that's where we need to go next. 
And I'm really interested in your, your perspective on how pandemic has influenced our conversation on these topics. Well, the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly brought to the fore um, many of the things that we were already experiencing anyway. Uh, loneliness, depression, anxiety, stress, uh, certainly addictions and eating disorders. You know, it's like it's like it amplified um, all of these uh, experiences that we were probably having anyway. And as a result, I think because of the environment in which we found ourselves um, uh, through all the the mental health awareness work that we've been doing for the last decade, uh, it has really blown up uh, in a in a very public way this conversation about mental health. So I think you know if this had to happen uh, in the, for you know whatever reason, I think it's uh, almost good in a way uh, that we're able to have this conversation about mental health now, that people are still struggling as a result of the pandemic very acutely. Uh, But fortunately, we're more able to talk about it now than we ever were before. Uh, So I only see that continuing as uh, employers and um, universities and other contexts are having more meaningful conversations about mental health now than they ever have been. So now looking at all of this background, your book is really timely and it's called So-Called Normal, a memoir of family, depression and resilience. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Sure. Well, I mean, I I had been talking about my story, as I mentioned, since uh, high school. The very first um, time that I found out, I guess, that I was a mental health advocate, and that's the best way I can do it, it was really quite accidental was that I wanted to speak openly um, to my peers in school about my own experiences with attempted suicide, with severe and, depre- uh, severe and persistent depression. Uh, and I was largely discouraged from doing that, um, that I was told that you can't talk about suicide. It'll give people the idea to go out and do it as though they had never thought of it before. That's not how how it works. I mean, there's there's helpful and unhelpful ways, certainly, about uh, of talking about suicide. But we know that talking about suicide is one of the most effective ways to prevent it. Uh, that we want to know if people are are having these ideas. So I went and uh, wrote a letter to my local newspaper. That was the first time I ever wrote anything for public consumption. Uh, sharing my own story, really, for the very first time, and it had this incredible ef- effect of. Um, giving me ownership over my own story. So I wasn't standing on the sidelines of my own life anymore. I got to tell the narrative. Uh, And the result of that, you know, I had feared that I would be ostracized and alienated and made even more lonely than I already was, if such a thing were even possible. And the exact opposite happened. People started sharing their stories with me too and opening up about their own vulnerabilities as well. So that's what started, I think, for me, a a positive reinforcement loop of every time I would share my story, um, somebody would share theirs with me and talk about the impact that creating that brave space would have. Um, I was doing that for several years and culminating in some ways to the point of doing a TEDx Toronto talk in uh, 2013, in which I tell the story about the time I tried to jump off of a bridge in my hometown uh, to kill myself and how a stranger uh, who I only knew as a stranger in the light brown jacket reached out and saved my life. Well, when that story, when that video went up, it just went viral all over the world. It was seen by millions and millions of people. And that's really when I started doing more um, public speaking, doing bigger events and audiences. Uh, I made the transition from writing for newspapers. I'd been doing newspapers since high school, uh, uh, locally, regionally, nationally. That's when I made the transition to doing more radio and uh, and television. Um, so 
after a, a few years of that just really striking a chord with people, that that TED Talk, uh, I came upon the opportunity to write the book. And that was important for me because um, there's only so much you can do in a 16-minute TED Talk, right? The, the, it's a certain narrative arc uh, that you necessarily have to leave a lot out. And it, it, it was important for me to get a better understanding of um, everything that led up to uh, that that um, suicide attempt, uh, but then also everything that came after. That so many people think that you see somebody on a stage talking about one of the worst moments of their life that their their life must be great uh, now, you know, or or even worse that their struggles must not have been that bad if they were able to make it out of it. So I really wanted to give people more context around the reality of recovery, which is that it's often messy and it, you can get through really hard things uh, and survive, and that you can do something with it. So when I had the opportunity to write the book, that's that's really um, what I wanted to accomplish. And thankfully, because of my my um, existing relationships with speaking and media, um, we secured HarperCollins to publish it. Uh, the writing process and editing process was much longer than I thought that it was going to be. Um, but fortunately, once we finally got it out, uh, you know, it was very well received, and um, my whole heart and soul went into it. I, I really needed to get my whole story out there. So, you know, that was, that was the process of, uh, of writing the book and, um, the new edition of it is coming out this summer. So I look forward to a whole new audience finding it. And millions of people have watched your TED talk and uh, countless number of people followed your story throughout. So from perspective of uh, the reader, it's really insightful and gives such a much, much, much bigger picture of what's actually going on. So let's delve into some of your story. And where do we find you first? So I was uh, raised on the east coast of Canada, Nova Scotia, a little island called Cape Breton. Uh, the biggest city is about 25,000, 20, 25,000 people, I think. I lived on the outskirts, though, in a little, a little small town on the outskirts. Uh, at the end of a dead-end dirt road, surrounded by uh, 115 acres of uh, woods on uh, on almost every side, so the isolation that I felt, I think, in that place um, still I- impacts me today. In fact, I still, uh, you know, when I went away to write the book, I went away to a Trappist monastery in the woods because I needed to get in touch with that time of my life. Um, so that's where I grew up. It was a very down-home uh, kind of place, and then. I think it was getting out of there that really started to expand my worldview more, um, having traveled around for university, for undergrad and graduate school, and then settling in in Toronto, which is Canada's biggest city. It couldn't have been more different uh, than, than where I grew up. So, you know, it, it really helped to give me some perspective about... Uh, what was considered normal growing up in a small town, which was that it wasn't normal to talk about your emotions, that um, uh, the trauma that we experienced, the abuse that we experienced was actually, unfortunately, quite normal for a lot of people. But I think that's actually what stopped people from from talking about it in some ways too that it it almost felt like, well, everybody goes through this kind of stuff. you know, life is hard for everybody. What makes you special? <laughs> and, you know, it was only much later that I realized that things could be different, uh, that that I could get away and I didn't have to be uh, as locked into that small mindedness uh, as that I thought that I had to be when I grew up in that small town. 
So what were some of the uh, moments in your childhood that you realized that perhaps your normal was not very normal for others, for example? It was a little bit different. Yeah. You know, it was, um, I think it was after my father left. And I mean, my my. my parents' marriage was probably over for a lot longer than uh, before my father eventually left. But after he left, we struggled with uh, basically on the brink of poverty for a long time. And my mother was a nurse uh, who would work night shifts and 12-hour shifts, often gone for 14 hours at a time. Um, so we hardly ever saw her. She was often not home when I would get home from school or wake up in the morning. Uh, so it was very often my older sister, or, or to a lesser extent, my brother, who would uh, raise me. And then it was after we moved, my mother met somebody else, and we moved in with him, uh, uh, that I really started to decline. You know, that that major change. Ironically, after my father left, it was hard. There was no question. But we were all kind of in it together. It wasn't um, pathologically hard, I think. But after we moved in uh, with the man I came to know as my stepfather, although he and my mother were never married, um, that's when I was introduced to this culture of toxic masculinity around me all the time, that it wasn't okay to talk about how I was feeling, uh, that I had to be a man, as he always said. That was one of my most... uh, one of the most common refrains of my childhood from my stepfather was to be a man, even though I was just a little boy, uh, to suck it up, that boys don't cry, um, that it became, I became conditioned uh, to find my negative or, or vulnerable emotions uh, uh, to, be, to be negative, to be aversive. Um, so that, I think, learning to not express myself uh, was what ended up closing down my mental system in such a way that of course it was going to blow up eventually. We have to have release valves to let the steam out of our mind every now and then. Uh, That's how we regulate. So it was no wonder in retrospect that I never learned how to regulate in an environment where I don't think the adults uh, really had very, very effective self-regulation skills. Uh, And that was what was one of the most interesting things about the book was looking back at all of my medical records, literally laying it out on the floor and on tables in front of me uh, and seeing the bigger picture and thinking to myself, why didn't anybody else see this? You know, because normal means being so collapsed into your own little provincial uh, corner of the world, corner of perception, that you don't really see much else outside of that. So I, I, I think that's what helped happened for me. Um, you know, so I, I'd say those, that, those events of... Um, losing uh, of my father leaving he was still in this in the same hometown uh but then the the really quite catastrophic change of moving into an environment where i didn't feel safe uh for many years i think that underpinned a lot of the struggles that i would then face for the rest of my childhood and and teenage years so what i learned from your book is that being a teenage boy is really difficult so i was wondering how was it being a teenage boy with a mental illness yeah, you know, I think being a teenager, period, is uh, is difficult. Um, it's a time of incredible change. It's a time not just of physiological change, but of emotional and psychological change as well. Um, so, you know, I think for me, uh, for all teenagers, for all young people, for all everybody, but especially teenagers, um, what other people think of you uh, is of incredible importance. You know, you just want to fit in. You just want to be seen as as part of the group. You don't want to be alone or ostracized or uh, treated as different. Um, so for me, hiding uh, what 
was very clearly, I think for me anyway, a mental illness became became absolutely primary. Uh, and that as people started to find out that I was struggling, because I started to struggle in a very public way, um, it turns out you can't just push down all of your feelings uh, forever, that it's going to come out one way or another. And the harder that you push it away, the louder it's going to come out. And that certainly was what happened with me. Um, so then as people started finding out, my my peers started finding out about my struggles, it was almost as though uh, the stigma that I was experiencing, the stigma and discrimination, was worse than the symptoms of my illness. That it was that it was. Uh, I felt like I I didn't fit anywhere, and that's all that I really really wanted. Uh, so it was exacerbating uh, my condition even further. Um, I think that was part part of what was most difficult for me. The other side of it is that um, adults. Don't even though adults were once kids too and know how it felt, uh, pretty pretty readily I think forget what it felt like uh, to be young and to have nobody take you seriously, just to be seen as ha- going through a phase or that you're that you don't understand or or whatever. And what I needed most was people to validate my experience, um, even though I was a young person, and I didn't feel like many people really did that. Uh, many it felt like a lot of people didn't really see me uh, for who. I really was. And it wasn't until actually much later when a stranger uh, saved my life that I felt like somebody actually really, really saw me for the first time. So as you speak of these relationships that are really important between you and your peers, and you also talk about the times you were hospitalized during this time. So can you tell us how did those experiences uh, uh, sort of influence you during during what you experienced? Yeah, I was um, brought to haunt. Uh, well, I was first discovered to be suicidal for the first time when I was 12 years old. Um, I think I'd actually been suicidal and certainly depressed for several years before that. But people found out for the first time when I was 12, um, because I had gone to school uh, in a story I tell in my TED talk, I had gone to school um, after a fight with my stepfather that morning, actually very emotional, very dissociated. Actually, I'd started experiencing dissociation as a result of, uh, not only the emotional trauma, but also sexual trauma I had experienced when I was a child. Um, and not really even knowing where I was kind of just, uh, having difficulty remembering things. Um, all I could really seem to do was to draw in the margin of my test 10 different ways that I could kill myself. And then my teacher saw that, of course, and referred me down to the guidance counselor who talked to me about it, who then told me that I had to go to the hospital, which took me by complete surprise, it seemed interestingly, because the suicidal thoughts and feelings felt normal to me. I mean, I only knew the world through my own mind. I didn't realize that other people didn't think this way, (laughs) that I only knew myself. Um, so he sent, they sent me to the hospital and, um, uh, I was there for hours and hours and hours in the emergency room. I think like eight or nine hours that first time, maybe. Um, and I actually felt better after talking about it. I mean, I, I had to tell people over and over and over again, repeat how I was feeling so many times, uh, that it really let a lot of that steam out of my mind, uh, that I had been accumulating. So I was released that first time and sent back home, but it turns out nothing changes if nothing changes. I didn't learn any coping mechanisms there. I didn't relieve the social pressures and stresses uh, and dysfunction uh, in my in my family life or, or increasingly at school with, with bullying and with my academic struggles that were starting to emerge. Um, so I uh, uh, 
although was feeling better for a short time, uh, decompensated again fairly quickly and got worse again much quickly. And that's really what started a, a cycle over the next three years uh, of going into hospital, release, getting released in, back into the community with very little, sometimes no uh, extra supports, um, doing okay, coasting for a little while, but then in getting a whole lot worse and going back to hospital even worse than I was the last time, um, attempting suicide in increasingly dangerous uh, um, circumstances and plans uh, each time uh, until eventually, three years later, I find myself on the edge of this bridge uh, ready to jump, standing on an inch and a half or so of concrete because I'd been in and out of hospital so many times that I felt like if all these really smart people can't fix me, Maybe it meant I was unfixable. Maybe it meant I was unhelpable. And I didn't want to be a part of a life uh, if this was all there was. And I was convinced at that time that, that that was all there was. So who were some of the most influential people in your life during that time? Well, I would say certainly initially that guidance counselor that I was brought to the very first time and then several times after that, he became a very important part of my um middle school experience uh, with mental illness. And it wasn't because he had all the answers or knew how to help me necessarily. Uh, but what stood out was that he was friendly and warm and he seemed to to always have time for me, uh, which was nice. You know, he was, a, he was a positive force in my life, even if he didn't have all the knowledge uh, for how to help me. Um, there were a couple of teachers, two in particular, in fact, uh, that were particularly empathetic. And I, I much actually later found out, I never knew if it was related or not, but it's related in my head, um, that they both had children of their own uh, with special needs. Uh, and I think it takes a very special type of parent uh, to have a kid with special needs. It, it expands your empathy capacity in a way I think that most people don't experience. Um, so those two teachers uh, were were particularly um, connect. I was connected with those two teachers in particular. And then much later, uh, although we only spent a very brief time with each other, when I had climbed up over that railing and that stranger who I only ever knew as a stranger in the light brown jacket, he talked to me. And then eventually when I let go of the railing, he grabbed me and he saved my life. Um, and then he, and then he disappeared. So, so, uh, even though we were only together for a short amount of time, the powerful impact that that man had on me in that time really changed my entire life. It, it changed my trajectory because I lived the rest of my life then wanting to be just like him. The story on a bridge is really extraordinary. And um, I'm hoping our, reader, our readers and listeners will uh, watch that TED Talk and read your book to find out more. So let's talk about the bigger picture now. So you already mentioned what normal was, but can you just expand a little bit? What is this term normal? You know, normal, I think, is just what we're used to. <laughs> I mean, the, I, I, good or bad or up or down or sideways or backwards, whatever it is, there's no such thing as objective normal. Normal is relative. There's nowhere to stand. That it's just what we know. It, 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 normal is a habit. And that's why I call the book so-called normal, because here's the, the interesting thing about normal is that it's so highly relative and in, in many ways socially determined Yet it's one of those, it has this unique characteristic of people who experience it being absolutely convinced that it is right and that it is the only way and that we have this almost um, willful resistance 
to seeing anybody else's normal or seeing the world through other people's eyes. And I really think that's the activity of, of empathy is to try to understand, or even if you can't understand, at least make space for other people's normals, that nobody else can experience the world the way that you experience it because they don't have your brain. They don't have your history. They don't have your connectome. Uh, they don't They don't know what you know in the way that you know it. Therefore, they can't possibly see the world according to your normal. So the best thing that we can do then is to try to get our normal, uh, or first of all, to own our normal as it is, that we are everything we've ever experienced, and then to try to get it as close as we can to other people's if possible, or at least create enough permeability, enough space to allow our normal to change. That our normal, I think, needs to be an organic, breathing, uh, evolving creature. It's just our experience of the world and nothing more, but nothing less. So in your book, you talk about the uh, mental illness, but you also talk about the physical illnesses. Uh, for example, when um, when you were hospitalized with maybe broken bones, and how were those experiences different? Yeah, when I was um, uh, quite young in, in particular, uh, I had a series of seizures as well that seemed to be related to the various medications that I'd been uh, prescribed uh, as a result of my mental health challenges. Um, and I remember that in particular going into hospital, being up on the top floor of the hospital. They had talked at one point of sending me to a bigger city, to, to a bigger hospital to help me. Uh, I got cards from school and gift baskets and people came to visit me. But then when I was on the psychiatric ward, it was in the dark cinder block basement uh, of the same hospital. Uh, the doors were all locked, of course. There were, uh, it was such a, a stark uh, difference from the caring, compassionate, sunny place, friendly place up on the up on the top floor, um, and that image always stuck with me. How very few people uh, came to visit me on the psych ward. Most were probably scared, uh, or didn't know what to do, or were ashamed, or whatever, uh, or didn't know if it was appropriate. There were probably lots of reasons. Very few, if any, ever sent cards or gifts or anything like that. Uh, and that that dichotomy uh, has long stuck with me. Uh, that, that I think we attribute people's mental health struggles uh, to choice, that they choose to be that way, uh, and that it's inconvenient for other people, that it's embarrassing, that it's shameful. Um, so people still, I think to this day, avoid uh, people who need that kind of critical mental health care. Uh, and that's such a shame because we know that while no, that should not be the primary um, mode of recovery or the primary context of recovery, we know that people don't get better from mental health problems and illnesses in hospital necessarily. People get better in the environment in which they got sick, ironically, or at least a, a similar healthier environment. You have to learn how to recover in the world. But even still, that kind of environment needs to exist uh, as a part of a well-functioning healthcare system, and it needs to exist in a non-stigmatized, uh, equal way. That mental illnesses and physical illnesses are not the same. Depression is not the same as cancer. You see that said all the time. But they do require parity of esteem. Uh, they do require equity, uh, that they need to be uh, treated as potentially as disabling, uh, but also potentially as likely of recovery uh, as any physical illness does. So 
I think that we need to uh, honor the differences between mental and physical illnesses respectfully, um, but we also need to uh, ensure that we're that we're guaranteeing parity uh, between the two as well. And and we're still not there yet. So as you transition to adulthood, what did you want to do with your life? After the stranger in the light brown jacket saved my life and I started opening up about my own experiences, it was like I had just struck gold in a way, you know, that um, people are always talking about finding your purpose as though your purpose is out there waiting for you. Uh, And to, to a degree, I can say that in retrospect about my story, but I didn't know that at the time, uh, that when I started opening up about my story and doing it for a living, really sharing uh, my story to help other people, um, it was such an iterative process that happened over so many years that I didn't find my passion or my purpose. I built my purpose, uh, that I that I figured it out as I went and made lots of mistakes along the way. And, you know, when I said at the top, I, I jokingly say sometimes this is all I know how to do. It's really all I want to do uh, is mental health and to talk about uh, the brain and the mind and the, and the environments and societies that shape them. Um, this is I keep doing this work because it's all I want to do. It's all I'm really interested in doing. Um, and it applies in so many different um, contexts and to so many different subjects and topics. So I consider myself fortunate. I'm incredibly grateful uh, to ex- have experienced even the worst days of my life because everything that I've ever experienced has become material uh, that has fed into this passion, this purpose that I've built for myself over the years. So I think this is in some ways all I've ever really wanted uh, to do, and I get to do it every day. And alongside your, along your journey um, in your advocacy efforts, so what kind of hurdle, hurdles did you come across? Oh, I mean, there's there's um, uh, seemingly unending hurdles when it comes to this kind of work, particularly early on. Stigma was an absolute hurdle to opening up about um, mental health struggles of any kind because it just, you know, wasn't that common that that we were blazing our own way. Uh, there wasn't really any right or wrong way to do it because nobody was really doing it. Um, so that was one of the, and that was, a, a, I think, a primarily internal hurdle in many ways. Um, but also, as I started doing more and more media, media were hesitant to report on issues that had anything to do with mental health. Um, they often didn't report on positive stories. They still don't often report on positive stories of hope and recovery. Uh, the, the mantra in media is, if it bleeds, it leads. So they'll report on all the negative stuff. That's why a disproportionate number of stories that men- mention mental health and mental illness reference violence, despite the fact that that's a relatively rare occurrence and that mentally people with mental illnesses are not violent, uh, that it's a, a very small proportion of the, of the population. Um, but we still don't see that correct balance uh, in media right now. Um, so I think that that's a, a barrier that people face, um, an emerging barrier, and I should say an emerged barrier because it's already out there, is this idea um, of biological determinism, that if you have a mental illness, your brain is broken, uh, and that that it's just genetic, you were born this way, there's nothing you can do about it, is, is the logical extension of the, that line of thinking. And that's false. It's not supported by the science, uh, but it is, I think, uh, communicated by a sort of watered-down 
mental health awareness that's been out there for a few years uh, that has had a good aim. Its aim is to try to build legitimacy by saying that that mental illnesses are brain illnesses. Well, of course, they have correlations with the brain. Everything has correlations with the brain. You can't have anything that doesn't filter through your brain. That's how the brain works. Um but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's wholly determined by the brain or, or even worse, uh, that it can't be changed because we know the brain changes. So I think that's a, a persistent barrier right now is, is uh, against recovery, that I consider myself a radical advocate for recovery, uh, that even people with severe and persistent mental illnesses can and do uh, recover from, from uh, those experiences, uh, especially if they have the type, amount, uh, and duration of support that they need. And how would the perfect world look to you? Well, I mean, I, I hope that there's never a perfect world, actually, to be honest, because I think we build resilience uh, through our challenges. I mean, I was raised uh, it, sort of a, a version of new, uh, a version of Irish Catholic, which is sort of the life is hard, the, the, the world is hard, and there's lots of religions and cultures that I think share that, that view. Um, and I, I still believe that, not in a fatalistic sense, uh, but rather in a character-building one, uh, that you need uh, difficulty, you need discomfort to learn, that learning is uncomfortable. Um, so perfection is, is the enemy, uh, in my view, that in, in fact we need to learn to embrace the mess and to lean into the discomfort. That's really what recovery and, and resilience is all about. All that said, how do we get there? Well, we get there in supportive environments. Uh, so, you know, if we were to have a more perfect world or a less traumatic world, a less harmful world, harmful world, uh, we would have the social supports that people need uh, to to help them through difficult environments. That so much, just to look at suicide as one example, so much of our um, municipal and social suicide prevention strategies are basically lining up ambulances at the bottom of the bridge, both metaphorically and literally, um, when really that's not how you prevent suicide. That's a necessary tiny part of the system. But if you want to prevent suicide, then you need to prevent depression. And if you wanted to prevent depression, then you need to teach kids and, and even prenatally teach parents how to name and label their emotions, how to manage their emotions. We know that if we move further upstream, if you can deal with intergenerational trauma, if you deal with poverty and unemployment, homelessness, food insecurity, job insecurity, uh, that the social determinants of health uh, determine far more uh, than your genes do with respect to the vast majority of mental health problems and illnesses. So in a, in a, in a better world, uh, I think we recognize the social safety net uh, as an integral, as a critical part of, of recovering uh, and maintaining people's mental health. Oh, love it. It's basically taking the blame off uh, the people who are suffering. Absolutely. I mean, look, your your illness uh, is not your fault. <laughs> that I still maintain that just because it's not a. I don't necessarily maintain the um, uh, uh, absolute reductionist view that your brain uh, is responsible for all of the aspects of your illness. Um, your illness is not your fault, but your recovery is your responsibility, that you do have power, you do have self-efficacy, um, you have agency, and the things that you do, the choices that you make can indeed uh, help you to recover. So I think that we need to, we need to um, both recognize that 
and uh, support the choice architecture uh, that goes into making healthy choices. That it's easy enough to say, sure, you can make healthier choices, right? But if you can't afford good food, uh, or or uh, you can't get to a, a primary health uh, primary health provider because there's none available, there's none working in your area, or the wait times are so long, or uh, or you're a part of a marginalized community that has been historically uh, harmed by by certain sectors of society. I think if we don't recognize those things, then we can't build an inclusive system for everybody. So access is a key part, but we also have to recognize that um, access looks a little bit different uh, for everybody. And if we're going to build effective social systems, then we have to do it inclusively. And how optimistic are you that as a society we're actually able to achieve that? Well, I mean, I'm I'm tragically optimistic anyway. I think um, not romantically so, but I think um, my default setting now is optimism, and that's a conscious choice. It's more fun, um, but I do recognize that we're far away from doing that uh, in in many places, uh, and that's a shame to me because the business case for supporting people's mental health is clear. That if you have a happy healthy population, it's good for the bottom line. So in highly industrialized nations where profit is often the motive, where people, companies and governments are, are, um, uh, are accountable to their shareholders and the bottom line is the most important thing, then mental health should be a primary uh, concern because that's what helps the bottom line. But unfortunately, that is still very often lost. Um, I think there are good uh there's good signs, I think, and things occasionally move in the right direction. So just like with our personal mental health, we have to grab on to those positive developments and amplify those positive things uh, while working to change some of the things that work against us as well. And what discoveries in your research for your book, So-Called Normal, surprised you the most? Hmm. I think looking at my history. Well, so there were two things. There was pulling up, going through my history and being surprised by the sticky nature of memory, how I would uh, grab a thread of a memory uh, that I thought I knew about, and then a whole bunch of other stuff would come out with it. And suddenly I'm down this rabbit hole of all these um, associations in my mind that I didn't even know were in there. And it surprised me that there could be so much in my head that I was completely unaware of. That how did this stuff get in here? Oh, that's how it got in there. You know, so so figuring that out, discovering myself, uh, was a was an important realization through the writing process. Um, realizing how much of my trauma and difficulty was just under my skin for so long, like I didn't. It had become normal. Normal is just what you get used to, and I was used to always being on edge, of always getting uncomfortable near powerful male role, powerful male uh, figures, uh, authoritative male figures feeling it in my body whenever they were around. I thought it was normal to always um, react strongly uh, in, in certain ways, especially to ab perceived abandonment uh, or perceived uh, um, uh, uh, difficult, social difficulties. Um, it was only through writing the book and I was actually able to process a lot of the underlying stuff, almost in a, almost in a psychoanalytic sense in some ways, uh, that I was able to realize that, oh, I don't have to carry this stuff around with me under my skin or just waiting to come out all the time. That I can take it out, I can work on it, I can put it back into myself in, a, in, a, in better order and then go on with my life and stop thinking about it, stop carrying those wounds with me everywhere I go. 
that for me was not only a surprise, uh, it was, it was revolutionary. It was healing that this book was, um, was therapeutic for me in so many ways. And towards the end of the book, we find out the really crucial detail about your life that you had a cat. (laughs) (laughs) what, What was he like and what was his name? So, um, you know, I've always had uh, pets around my house and uh, a cat in particular. I tell the story in in my uh, book that I got when I was in high school and brought him away with me. It was when it was just a it was kind of a scrappy thing when I first got him, because um, one of the first realizations that I could do something outside of my little hometown and that there was a bigger world out there was that I had lived in Quebec on a language exchange, learning French for the entire summer and in uh, near the end of secondary school. Um, and when I came back, I brought this cat back with me that I that I bought uh, un, unknown to my parents. And my stepfather, who was still living with at the time, tried to kick him out a bunch of times, but he kept coming back. And uh, uh, I moved out in high school at one point as well and brought the cat with me. Uh, and then when I went away to undergrad, the first of my family to actually leave, I remember my sister telling me when I was applying, you don't think you'll actually get out of this place, will you? You know, nobody gets out of this place. But I was accepted and I went away. I brought the cat with me. Uh, then I went away to graduate school. I brought the cat with me. I went to settle down in Toronto after grad school, um, working in mental health, brought the cat with me there too. Um, so he was just kind of always he was an important, I think, um, symbol for me in many ways of the thread connecting my childhood and my adolescence, my uh, early adulthood into my professional life and my, and my adulthood. Because I think so often when we grow up, if we grow up, uh, we lose contact with our childhood self, uh, that we think that as soon as we turn 18 or 21 or whatever age it is, that, that suddenly we're a different person. Uh, when, of course, all us adults are just grown-up kids after all, and, and we are now everything, uh, we're, we're now the result of everything that we've ever been, everything that we've ever felt or thought or experienced, it has all impacted us in some way or another. So I think that cat for me was a, uh, an important uh, thread that wouldn't let me let go of the fact that I needed to make peace uh, with my past cats they can do everything can they well when they want to (laughs) (laughs) which doesn't happen very often (laughs) yeah well this has been a truly fascinating and really insightful discussion so can you tell us what's next for you uh, so my next project, uh, I'm uh, currently outlining and actually starting well into drafting a new book um, where I want to try to unpack uh, the, the biopsychosocial nature of how we learn how to be depressed. Because, you know, our, our, our brain certainly through the learning mechanisms uh, of the brain um, adapts to depression. Uh, I think our mind learns how to be depressed in terms of getting caught in cycles of unhelpful thinking patterns. And our society learns how to not only keep us depressed, but uh, uh, how how we impact as, as people with depression, we impact our society as well. So I'm interested in looking at the sort of reciprocal feedback loops um, between, between those three domains. And then all of that for the purpose of trying to see how we can um, unlearn depression, if such a thing is possible, or at least relearn uh, anti-depression, <laughs> I think. Um, so that's the project that I've been working on uh, most recently that's taking up a lot of my time. I also host uh, a, a video podcast called the so-called, or called um, 
the Living Well podcast. My old podcast was so-called normal, uh, and the book, of course. Uh, but the Living Well podcast, I've been focused on having uh, really incredible conversations with a wide uh, range of people. For example, we have a new episode up today with Dr. Tom Insel, uh, who used to be the head of the National Institute of Mental Health, neuroscientist and psychiatrist, and had a wonderful discussion about his new book uh, and his view of the, the biopsychosocial nature uh, of mental health and mental illness. So, you know, I, I continue to do, to follow, uh, to build my passion and my interests in this way. Um, and I'm always excited looking for new ways uh, to do that as well. So uh, living living my best life and, and enjoying every minute of it. And what would be your message to all our listeners and especially the ones who may be struggling? I like to think of... Uh, the author Anne Lamott's advice for new writers uh, when thinking about this. And she said, you own everything that has happened to you. Uh, why that's important for me is that even if other people were involved in your story, even if other people saw your story differently than you do or experienced your story differently, differently than you do, it doesn't matter that you own it. And what's empowering about that, I think, is that you can do whatever you want with your story that everybody has had traumas, everybody has had difficult experiences, everybody's had stuck moments and hills and valleys in their life, but you get to choose what you do with all of those experiences. That for me, it's become material. I can do something good uh, with the, that stuff that has happened to me. Um, so that's what I hope that other people do as well. I encourage this in my TED Talk, in my book, and in almost all of the work that I do, um, that what has happened to you, uh, you can use for something good, that you can do good with whatever your story is, that your story is important, that you are important, uh, and that you can, you should never fall into the trap of somebody else's narrative to devalue your experience, uh, because they have their own story and they're on their own journey too. So, you know, stay the course, um, take heart and use your story to change the world. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me.